Kira, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly. The content is entirely independent and was developed by the Goodfellow Unit and our speaker. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Dr. Ryan Paul to the podcast. Today we are discussing planned fasting in the patient with type 2 diabetes. Ryan is an endocrinologist and diabetologist at Waikato District Health Board and a senior lecturer at the University of Waikato. His particular research interests include the use of emerging technologies in type 1 diabetes, the management of diabetes in youth and young people, reducing inequities in diabetes care in Maori and rural populations, and improving models of diabetes care. Ryan is an executive member of the New Zealand Society for the Study of Diabetes, and in 2019, he was awarded the New Zealand Clinical Educator of the Year by the New Zealand Medical Council. Kia ora, Ryan, and welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Louise, and thanks for inviting me. A really relevant topic at the moment. So today we're discussing the planned fast in the patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus. Tell us about this, Ryan. Well, first thing I'd like to say is it is very popular at the moment, fasting. And there's probably nothing more controversial that you could get in in the diabetes field in terms of an evidence-based. So I will just quickly describe the two main types of fasting. This is quite a broad term. There's intermittent fasting that has a defined period of fasting. And that common examples um, would be time-restricted eating. And you may have heard of the, the 16-8 diet with, with fasting for 16 hours and eating for eight hours. There's also the B2 um, regimen, which is another common type. That's where you have two main meals a day, breakfast and lunch, and, and skip dinner. Another example of, I guess, defined period is water-only fasting. Generally, that may be for only one day a week, but sometimes patients do it for more days a week. And the other term, um, which is commonly, I guess, grouped under intermittent fasting, is intermittent caloric restriction um, that um, doesn't have a period of fasting. Um, and common examples there would be the 5-2 diet. So it's five days of, of eating ad libitum or as normal and two days of restricted eating, which may either be consecutive days. Um, some people prefer to do that in the weekends or it may be on, on, on two separate days. Um, another um, example would be some people do alternate fasting and it might literally be alternate days or, or certain days of the week. And those days are really restricted eating with, with a very low calorie diet. So it's a very broad term. And I will say, I guess up front, that there's no evidence to suggest any, any option that is better, better than the other. But it does raise um, questions for you as, as the GP in the practice. So what are the potential benefits of fasting, if any? Well, the main benefit is weight loss. And I think it's really important that we always remember that weight loss is the cornerstone of management of type 2 diabetes. And the good news is that most patients actually do well, at least in the short term, in fasting and may even lose up to six or seven kilograms in weight. And that, that weight loss is actually equivalent to studies that have been done where you reverse continuous caloric restriction. So just you know, fasting for that or shorter time rather than continuously can still carry the same benefits. Um, it's also associated with other benefits in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk, um, such as reductions in, in blood pressure, triglycerides, and, and LDL cholesterol. I will say that the results are, are very variable between the studies. 
and that the vast majority of the studies that have been done have been short-term and with many sort of around the three-month mark and most under 12 months. So are there any downsides of fasting or potential risks and are there any particular groups of diabetic patients who shouldn't fast? Regards to, uh, I guess, groups that shouldn't fast, I would say definitely not during pregnancy or breastfeeding in children, I guess, due to the potential impacts. There's also the risk, particularly of in hypertension and I guess hyperuricemia in those with, with renal failure and the risk of arrhythmia. So in terms of your patients that had advanced renal disease or cardiovascular disease, I would not be strongly advocating fasting in that group. And then in terms purely with regards to their glycemic control, we know that patients on insulin and or sulfonylureas an increased risk of hypoglycemia. So I would make sure that they definitely have a planned approach to fasting. Those are the ones at greatest risk. If you've got patients on other agents, such as maybe alone or in combination metformin, filagliptin, empagliflozin, or dutaglutide, or pioglitazone, these patients aren't at risk of severe hypoglycemia, um, but empagliflozin itself does carry a potential risk if we're talking about um, very low carbohydrate diet and the associated risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. So I wonder if we can talk about medications a little bit more. Yep, so- sure. Thinking about those glucose-lowering therapies and those other medications, what do we need to think about and what do we need to advise our patients on, please? With regards to insulin sulfonylureas, there's no sort of perfect answer to prevent hypoglycemia just because everyone's so, so varied. But the studies, a rough ballpark figure is reductions on 50% on fasting days. Obviously, if patients are on a lot of uh, you know, pranduins, then you may need a much greater re- reduction than that. I'm saying with sulfonylureas. So really my, my biggest advice would, would be get patients to monitor their glucose levels. And it may be you know, at least three to four times a day on fasting initially and work out how much they actually need to cut back their insulin and sulfonylureas back. That's really the, the main way of keeping, keeping them safe. With regards to empagliflozin, it really depends on really the total carbohydrate amount they're getting in. The recommended intake is 130 grams of carbohydrate per day um, in terms of re- meeting your, your carbohydrate requirements. With patients on time-restricted eating, and this includes Ramadan, which and there are many other types of religious fasts as well, that often these patients still get their carbohydrate and the recommended carbohydrate intake in the times that they're eating. So in those patients, we know that there's no increased risk of DKA if they're on empagliflozin. But on patients who will be having very low carbohydrate diets, you know, the, the actual figure is controversial in, in itself, but less than 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate, then I'd actually be very nervous about empagliflozin in that group, particularly if you thought they weren't going to monitor their ketone levels or seek sick day management if they were unwell. And that's a group where I'd actually be thinking about withholding empagliflozin or alternatively, you may actually decide to switch them to dutaglutide as, as another agent to provide benefit in that group. Otherwise, I'd be, you know, if they're on other glucose-lowering therapies, fasting could actually be you know, a, very, a very safe option um, for at least short-term gains. So perhaps in those groups with a very low carbohydrate diet, should we be considering a referral to a dietitian or someone who knows what they're doing in this sphere? Yeah, I, I think involving a dietitian is early um, is, 
really important. In fact, that's for the management of, of diabetes full stop, um, but also particularly if your patient's fasting. One of the biggest issues, unfortunately, can be access um, to dietitian. That varies from DHB to DHB. But I think, you know, best practice would be to involve a dietitian as early as possible. So is fasting something that you recommend to your patients? Well, I think it's a very important thing to discuss the actual pros and cons behind a fast. And it's about comparing it to, I guess, the other, other potential options. Now, I know, um, I will say there's some controversy that, that dietitians, you know, support mainly a Mediterranean or plant-based diet. The main reason for that is that these are the diets that uh, have the greatest evidence for reductions in weight, glycemic control, and other cardiovascular risk long-term. With um, fasting diets and I will say the, the keto diet as well, there's very good short-term evidence of, of benefit, but the, looking at two years and above, there's actually little evidence to support their use. Part of that is the tolerability of the diets. And you know, particularly with intermittent fasting, often a third stop after about three months. And after a year, you know, it's well over half that they've, they've dropped out because they can't tolerate it. At the end of the day, I, I honestly think it's about doing what works for your patient. And if they find fasting as being uh, intermittent fasting as being a safe and effective option, then I think that's one thing that you can definitely pursue. But if they don't, I think it's about pulling the pulling the pin early. But it's also about you know m- providing your your patients with the best evidence to, that's around at present. And at the moment, that that is. Um, Mediterranean and plant-based diets, but it's also about taking a pragmatic approach. Ryan, you've mentioned evidence, and evidence is always great to discuss. So I wonder if we can talk about any trial data that there is to support fasting. Well, I've included actually a review article in the references, which goes through, I guess, many of the trials um, to date. And there are, to be fair, there are good randomised trials that have been performed on fasting. One issue is that there's very little data, if any, of any head-to-head study. So, you know, for example, you know, the 5-2 diet versus a keto diet um, versus, you know, the 16-8 diet. So there's no real evidence to suggest, you know, what works for a patient. But you can also then talking about, you know, individualizing, you know, if you were to go down the line of fasting, individualizing the region to what works for them, you know, around their work and, and lifestyle and what works for them culturally as well. You know, what do they have the financial capability? Because, you know, it's actually quite expensive to go on you know, some, of, some of these diets. So that's going to be, be a big factor um, as well. I would, I would encourage people to look at the evidence, but the, the main issue is the paucity of, of evidence. And what would be fantastic is if actually we do have these long-term trials, and that, that data will come, and that may well, that will likely change our recommendations. But it really is the paucity of evidence at present, which is the or long-term evidence, I'll say, which is the issue at present. So Ryan, I wonder if we can just touch on the direct trial, please. Can you tell our listeners about the direct trial, why it was set up and what its objectives were, what the evidence was that was found, and a couple of years down the track, what are we seeing? Thanks, Louise, for bringing it up. That's a fantastic point about the direct trial. What was great about that study was it was multiple GP practices in primary care in the UK, and it was primary care-led, and it was a very successful intervention. And what they did was they took a, a very low calorie diet in those with pre-diabetes or very early onset type 2 diabetes. And what they found was that they could successfully um, reduce the development of type 2 diabetes, in fact, get 
in remission in terms of reduction in glucose ion therapies and off glucose ion therapies um, two years post, post the intervention. And what we'd love to see in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a rollout of a national direct type trial. We'd, we'd Kiwi-fy it, of course, but I think it would be, in terms of, of evidence base, that is another really important intervention that primary care could, could lead the front of um, for the treatment of, of diabetes. Great, thank you for that. So our patient comes to us, says they want to fast. What advice do we give them and how do we safety net for them? I think it's about looking at the, at the uh, first, I guess, the, their glucose-lowering therapies and will they need adjustment? Because you, you will need to start straight away with that to, to make sure that they stay safe during the fasting period. If you don't think they'll be safe, I literally think you have that conversation up front saying, look, I don't think this is going to be a good option for you. Can we consider these other options? It is really important that patients stay well hydrated and that is at least two to three litres a day um, whilst they're fasting. And that is also to help you know, prevent other potential um, adverse effects such as renal stones and, um, as well. You also pay to look at their antihypertensive regimen because if their blood pressure control is tight, you may well actually have to reduce some or a few of their antihypertensive agents to prevent hypotension from happening. The other thing as well I think is useful is, is looking at the uric acid um, level. Do they have gout? Because if they've got very high uric acid levels, they're only going to get worse in the, in the first six weeks. And you may well need to think about you know, starting on increasing the dose of allopurinol to prevent gout from, from, from occurring. And then it's, it's, I guess it's just those safety issues I discussed. You know, I, do they have renal failure? Do they have arrhythmias? You know, do, do we actually need to be advising against fasting? But I will say for the, for the vast majority of your patients with type 2 diabetes, they could do fasting safely. So it's, it's really about strike, striking that balance. Great. Well, thank you for that. And to conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages, please, for our listeners. First, I'd like to say weight loss remains the cornerstone of management, and that there's no evidence to suggest any individual strategies are better than any others. So I think it's about working with your patient to, you know, what's, what's best for them. I still think it's important that you discuss what, what the current evidence base is so that they're aware of the options out there and, and the risks and benefits of, of each option. And it's about being, I guess, if your patient is going to fast, about being proactive and reducing the insulin and sulfonylureas if you have to, and looking at the other medications such as antihypertensives and allopurinol. Those on Empica flows and other SGL2 inhibitors, just be very wary of the risk of DKA, which although rare, is, is still important to know in those on a very low carbohydrate diet. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them and you'll find Ryan's references on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.